This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. You know what? I can create a great story on my own for under $100, including production costs, and put it out on the internet, and hundreds of thousands of people are going to see it. And I don't need to wait a year for your email back. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is Morgan Smith. Morgan is a writer, a model, and a producer who had two off-Broadway shows, produced two original off-Broadway shows, in fact, before graduating college. She's also the creator of Averno, which some have described as Marvel Universe, but for musicals. We'll have to hear more about that later. Morgan, it's a delight to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You call yourself a myth weaver on your website. Tell me what that means to you. So that is a reference to Sappho, who's one of my favorite poets. And she has a quote about how she doesn't want to be a poet or a storyteller. She wants to be a myth weaver. So I'm very interested in mythology. I think that the kind of like grandeur and humanity of those stories, they have a real lasting effect to them, obviously, given the fact that we still know a lot about Greek mythology, even though it's thousands of years old. And so I kind of want to hit the same balance between the sort of like cosmic and magical, but also deeply human and deeply flawed characters that exist in mythology. So whenever I look at stories and look at sort of the tableaus that I'm creating, I always try to incorporate characters like that. Very impressive. You grew up immersed in fantasy. Was that a family pastime, favorite family reading matter, or did you happen onto it on your own? My mom really enjoys fantasy. She's the one who introduced me to Harry Potter when I was very, very young. She started reading it to me when I was probably like one or two. And she introduced me to Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And that's definitely kind of the genre that we share in common the most. We've passed back and forth fantasy books my entire life. You told me once upon a time that you you've talked a lot about these really long car trips you would do as a family back in the olden days before everyone had their own screen or their own iPod or something. And you you would pass books around your parents would pass books back and forth in the car and read the whole journey. They really do. Yeah, I'm honestly, the older I get, the more impressed I am by that, because there would be trips when we were driving from like Virginia to Maine, which is like a 13, 14 hour drive. And they would read aloud darn near the entire time, which I mean, I guess is what you have to do if you're subjecting four and five year olds to 14 hours in a car, like you got to kind of bribe them with something. But I'll never forget, we were driving on one of these long car trips, 
when the sixth Harry Potter Half-Blood Prince, when the Half-Blood Prince came out. And so we picked it up at the beginning of the drive and mom was reading it aloud to us. And that's the one where Dumbledore is killed. And she gasped out loud and started crying because she she hadn't read it before. We were all reading it aloud together and we were like, mom, don't stop. What happens? What happens? <laughs> and then she said it and we were all like, oh no. <laughs> we had to like pull over for a minute and collect ourselves. <laughs> yeah. The, the emotion was a little overwhelming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've got an amazing number of projects already under your belt, Morgan. I know people my age that would wish they had so many items on their resume as you have at the ripe old age of 21. But I mean, your youth is an unusual aspect of where you are at the moment, but so is the number of projects and the momentum they each have. So tell me more about how you got here. I began writing when I was technically actually when I was in ninth grade, I, were, I wrote the first 14 pages of a novel and then put it down and didn't come back to it for another four years. I started writing sort of in earnest when I was probably 17 or so in high school. And basically I was kind of afraid that I wasn't going to be able to finish my first book. So I decided to do it all in a month and just like do it so that I would finish it because I kind of, I almost didn't know if I could, like the idea of writing a novel to someone who hasn't done it is very daunting. It just seems like so many words and so much writing. And if all you've ever done really is academic writing, then you just can't conceptualize how your brain could produce that many words. And so I just plowed through that first one in about 30 days. Where had the story for that come from? What was the genesis of it? That was a story. It was a fantasy based. It was kind of a sort of portal fantasy. I honestly, looking back on it, it's a little bit derivative, but I also love it a lot. It's kind of in the realm of Narnia or any other story where a group of children accidentally falls through to a magical world, Alice in Wonderland, et cetera. And it's based off of me and my cousins and the time that we spent on a family farm during the summers growing up. And so it follows a group of five cousins and they fall through a wishing well and end up in a magical world. And it was very fun. And it I think it encapsulated a lot of my like anxieties that I was having in that moment as sort of 17 edge of adulthood. I really felt for the first time, like I was well and truly leaving my childhood behind and understanding what that meant. And so I wrote this story to kind of try to freeze in time some of these like memories and moments in the way that I saw the world at that moment. Interesting. And did your vision of that magic world on the other side of the wishing well, did that sort of form subconsciously and just spring out of you? Or how much was it sort of thinking and plotting and back and forth? Oh, wait, there would have to be a so-and-so to make this next part of the story work. Yeah, it was definitely based off of the kind of Tolkien vision of fantasy, wherein you have sort of a continent and you have different sections of that continent that have different types of people slash like magical races. I In that one, there were sort of people who lived up on the clouds. There were people who could breathe. They weren't mermaids. They didn't have tails or anything, but they could breathe underwater. And they lived in these sort of big like Atlantis under the sea castles. There were people who lived in these tunnels inside a mountain. And then there was this, looking back on it, quite dark sort of vision of the sort of demonic evil character of it existed in this sort of like rotting static that was slowly but surely like consuming the world and consuming the minds of everybody. 
in the world and the protagonist ends up getting it inside herself. So it was, it was definitely dealing with a lot of just kind of like emotional things, but also just the traditional forms of fantasy of the kind of like lots of different places and they all have their own magic and we travel through all of them and meet people and pick up a person in each place and form a merry band of travelers to go defeat the eagle. <laughs> I love it. And you wrote <laughs> this in, in a month when you were 17? Yes. <laughs> but I, I recall a family story that that was not your first long form composition. Was there one around fourth grade? Yes. When I was in fourth grade, I became well and truly convinced that school was not for me. An opinion that hasn't changed since, actually. And <laughs> I wrote my parents a very long and I believe well-researched, like it was footnoted essay on why I should be homeschooled, including famous examples of people who had been homeschooled, homeschooling laws in my sort of state and region samples for the curriculum that I was going to design for myself, my reading list that I planned on doing. I thought it was pretty solid, actually. <laughs> they didn't go for it, unfortunately. <laughs> I think they were a little daunted by the idea of having to have me at home all the time, <laughs> <laughs> which I can understand. It's a lot. For, I have to be home with me all the time, and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I suspect there was a, a little virtue to having you vent some of your energy out of school for part of the day. Yep. Yep. <laughs> And you're also a world builder now through Averno, which, as I said in the introduction, I've heard described as Marvel Universe, but for musicals, you describe it somewhere on your website as messy, never-ending home. It is so many things. It's 13 musicals and four novels and a TV show and a podcast and a concept album and a webcomic musical and virtual reality and all produced during the pandemic. But explain Averno to an oldster like me. I think that you have to put aside all of those mediums and just take it for what it is, which is a world. The more you try to pin it down, the more confusing it gets because we're used to thinking of stories as first a medium, like a book or a movie or something like that, and then characters and then a plot or occasionally and then plot and then characters, depending on sort of what you're going for plot driven versus like just sort of an action movie or something. And the sort of setting becomes just background. Like you think of that as just sort of the ground that people traipse over in this movie or whatever. I kind of take the opposite approach, which is that before there was any medium to it, I created a world. I created a town and I created a system of political structures and a religious history and groups of different people and the conflicts that they had between them. I created all of these things before I wrote any of the pieces. It isn't a musical that has grown into other things or a novel that has grown into other things. It is first and foremost a world and it should be understood on those terms. Sometimes it helps to think of it as a place you've never been. You, I assume, have been many, many places, but <laughs> I don't know. Have you been to Namibia? No, I've seen all of Namibia, but I haven't ever been there. Okay. So let's say Namibia or just a country that you have very little understanding of. It is still a country, but until you have actually gone there, the way that you're going to understand it is in news articles, documentaries, films, books, etc. And that doesn't mean that it is a book that is turned into a country any of those things. It is still a place and it has its own history and its people and its world. And all of those other things are just venues and sort of ways that we're able to get there and lenses through which we can understand it. And you might understand Namibia via sort of groundbreaking 
art house horror film made by an up and coming 18 year old filmmaker, which is going to give you one view of it. Or you might understand it by reading trade manifestos going back 100 years, which is going to give you another. Or you might read all of the economist articles that have ever existed about it. Those are all going to give you different lenses. And those are all different ways of thinking about it. But if you looked at all of those and tried to understand those as this sort of what Namibia is, you're not going to get it. You just have to think of it as a place and a people and a world. And that is what Averno is. And all of the other things that I create are just means of understanding it. Fascinating. So it's developed quite an audience, I understand. Who is that audience? Where are they? They're all electronic. All over the place. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's kind of the beautiful thing is that we really do have fans all over the world because it is all online right now. Primarily, the audience tends to skew young, for sure, sort of 13 to 24 tends to be the biggest group of people. It tends to skew towards queer people, members of the LGBT community, and it tends to skew towards women, although that one's kind of changing a little bit. And I think that mostly what it skews towards are consumers of media who are used to the sort of fandom aspect of media. They're used to consuming something, loving it, and searching for community, searching for ways to engage with it, searching for ways to talk about it, and searching for ways to really participate in this thing that they love. Because that's where Averno plays really strongly, is that you love, say, Lord of the Rings. There's only, there's a finite amount of Lord of the Rings that exists. I mean, Christopher Tolkien keeps publishing more stuff, but like there is an end to what exists. Even the Marvel universe is so expansive and there are so many comic books and movies and stuff like that, but there is only so much that comes out every year or whatever. Whereas Averno, everything that has come out has come out only in about the past year. We're coming up on the one year anniversary of us like releasing our first song. I think it was July 27th, 2020 or something like that. So it allows you to sort of keep digging into this thing that you love. You don't have to only watch it once, read it once, et cetera, and then go off into your own corner and think about it. There really is kind of a never-ending stream of content coming out that people can engage with, which can be scary, I think, especially for people who don't come from that background and aren't used to conceptualizing storytelling and media that way. It can be confusing and people can get their feathers ruffled and be like, ah, I just don't know how to approach this and stuff like that. But I think you really just have to like let go of a lot of your preconceptions of what storytelling can function as and just meet it where it is. So do I visit Averno like I would visit Namibia as a curious person wanting to wander around and drop in stores or walk through the town square? Or do I or do I become a character? Do I take on a character and become one of the citizens of Averno as it were? You can do either. So, I mean, if you want to sort of just look at it from like an outsider perspective, there is plenty of content that you can just sit back and consume. The musicals, the webcomic, the podcast, et cetera. Those are all things that you can just sit in the comfort of your own home and experience those stories. However, there is also like a thriving sort of participatory community built around a lot of, one, a lot of people create OCs, original characters, which are their sort of self-insert or totally different sometimes characters. Their avatar for Averno, basically. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And they use those often for events that we run. We run a lot of events. We have one coming up, Camp Averno, happening in June. We have a sort of back to school event. And these are all sort of massive events where people can kind of 
role play that they are in Averno. I mean, it's kind of role playing and it's kind of reality because we are hosting all these events and there are all these things happening online. So in that case, then you can either, you can participate just as yourself, but you also can create your own character who is 19 years old and they're in this department and they go to their new school and stuff like that. So you do, you definitely can do that. And in that case, you can participate in the events. There's also like a thriving fan fiction community, fan art community, all of these communities dedicated to creating material, often centering their original created characters in Averno. Is the new school in Averno informed by your model of schooling that you tried to sell your parents in fourth grade? (laughs) Honestly, it is a little bit. The departments are, they were a completely new creation that I came up with last year, but they are modeled on the sort of more holistic understandings of learning that I've always been trying to pursue and that I have kind of created for myself since graduating. I immediately, as soon as I graduated, I was like, okay, great. Now I can get back to actually learning. (laughs) And so I've created a sort of curriculum of six week units where I focus in on something from a sort of multidisciplinary understanding, as opposed to sort of the American school system, which is very rigid and is like science and math are completely separate, have nothing to do with each other. And we can't talk to each other at all. You're in that building. I'm in this building. (laughs) Much less anything to do with art. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's definitely something that I was trying to address with the departments themselves and the fact that like the Department of Hidden Sequences is about understanding patterns in the world. And so there is code breaking and cryptography. There is also mapping and there's also like weather science. There's also mathematics and there is music. And these things all exist in the same department because it's the same fundamental way of understanding the world, which is looking for patterns and trying to understand what they tell us. So yeah, so since I've graduated, I've sort of come up with all of these various six-week units that I'm doing that include things that I'm watching, things that I'm reading, and things that I'm writing. And I wake up and I put myself through six hours of school every day, teaching myself all of the things that I have wanted to learn since I was in fourth grade, but now I have the opportunity to. So are you creating, you personal, creating all of this content for Averno? Is Averno a team of collaborators now? Yeah. So I do all of the like writing. I have, this is such a wobbly word because there are so many different mediums involved. But if there are words, I write them with the exception of lyrics. I often collaborate for that. But all of the books, the scripts for the web comics, the scripts for the musicals, the scripts for the TV shows, the scripts for podcasts, etc. I do all of those. I am a horrible visual artist. In fact, I am not a visual artist whatsoever. I cannot draw a straight line. So I have a brilliant team of collaborators on the art side who do create the sort of promotional art, all of the like concept art, character designs, or like the visual character designs, all of that kind of stuff. And then I collaborate on the music part. I am not a musician. So I work with a lovely, brilliant team of composers for that. The art on Averno is really fabulous. Just great, great stuff. Yeah. The artists on the team are so brilliant. I literally can't understand. Like I'm so unskilled in that territory. It is always mind blowing. And they'll just be like casually in our discord, which is sort of our, where we do all of our team management. They'll be like, Hey, here's this thing I made. And they just drop it. And I'm like, how do you do that? Like that is witchcraft. Like that is the real magic. And they do it in like, you know, three seconds, just a a sketch and the flick of a hand and they have a cartoon. And if I did the same thing, I would have an ink blot. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Exactly. Where are your collaborators based? You guys got all this done and produced it during the pandemic, right? 
it is all online. Well, so the the in-person recordings that we did and stuff, a lot of those people are based in and around the New York area just because that's where I am. And so in order to do things in person, that's kind of where you need to be. But for everything else, it's entirely based online. We use Discord to handle all of our management and do all of our meetings and stuff like that. We have a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in Canada, the UK. It is primarily English speaking. We have a lot of non-English speakers or people who speak things other than English, but it tends to come mostly from English speaking countries because we are English speaking. However, we're trying to change that now. We have a translation team and we're starting to put out content in other languages as well, which is exciting. But we also have team members in Taiwan, Indonesia, India, Australia, South America, Pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Have you ever gotten, you've gotten some of them together, right? Didn't you guys form a little COVID pod and do some of your work through 2020 yes. together? Yeah. So for the three albums that have come out or are coming out with Broadway Records, two of them are out. One of them comes out week after next. We formed a little pod last summer in July. We took about... I think it was 13 at its peak of us out to the woods. We all got tested and then bubbled and recorded those albums. So that was the composers and vocalists that were involved with those albums. Unfortunately, that is kind of the only group that we've managed to get together in person, just because like we're really just hitting the point where it's safe to do that. However, that is going to change this summer. We're doing Camp of Renault 2 this year. So we're getting another group of people together to work on things. And we're starting to go to cons, which is when we get to really start bringing our artists places, which is really exciting. That'll be, that'll be great fun. Mm -hmm. Where do you see Averno going? What It's like the ASCII word does Namibia go. It, it has a future and events <laughs> will unfold, but you must have some vision for how this will continue to evolve. And I'd love to hear what that is. And I'd also like to know, do you live in Averno or do you work on Averno? How does that feel to you? I live in Averno. I've had to try to get a little bit of space recently because it can be very all-encompassing. And it was very all-encompassing for the first year and a half that I was working on it. I had to get a little bit more separation this last semester of school just because I was so overwhelmed with school and trying to do both was really hard. But I mean, Averno is something that lives in me all the time. It's like a language. Like it really, it feels like being bilingual. Like I think in Averno a lot of the time. And in terms of where Averno goes, I think my biggest goal in the immediate future is to start getting more sort of traditional forms of releases. Just because like I have loved putting out all of this content on our own and it's very fun being in control of the entire process and stuff like that. But it's also starting to reach the point where I'm feeling like we've kind of not necessarily gotten as far as we can on our own, but we're kind of hitting a level where it's like, okay, it's time. It's time to level up. It's time to move to the next phase. It's time to really start seeing what this looks like with a bigger budget and a bigger operational team. And forms of release that are not just on the internet because all of our all of our content thus far has been digital but I really would love to traditionally publish a book that's kind of the biggest thing that I'm working on have been working on all morning and I would love to start getting some in-person productions of these different shows running you know I'm thinking also about that difference between the time specific experience of going to a theater on Thursday night for the eight o'clock show and it's a shared it's an in-person shared experience with the cast and with the however many hundred people are, are in the auditorium with you. And what you've produced is it's largely asynchronous. When you do your camps and things, you're you're creating that kind of moment. But 
What's your sense of how that works audience-wise? What are the pros and cons of being ubiquitously available? I mean, Averno exists anywhere for anybody, anytime they are able to go visit, whereas, you know, it's Thursday night at eight o'clock or not when it's a live mm-hmm. production. I think that it's about the specificity of those pieces, because again, Averno is this massive thing that you can access at any given moment and stuff like that. And every medium has its sort of best mode of being experienced. And for, for instance, a novel, like I think the best way to experience a novel is sitting out on your porch reading it or sitting in bed and being up until three in the morning because you can't put it down. And it is this really intimate experience between you and the words. And it is just it is just in that moment and in that sort of give and take. Whereas theater is by definition meant to be lived. That's what makes it different from film and from radio and all of this kind of stuff is the fact that it is these living, breathing bodies. And I mean, there's all this incredible research about how in when you have an an audience sitting together in a theater, then their actual like their heartbeats and their blood pressure and stuff like that will synchronize. And that's not something that you can understand online. And it's amazing that we've been able to put out these albums and that people know these stories and these characters and all of that kind of stuff. But theater itself is not cast albums and it is not online and that's really just down to like the strengths of the medium if you want to watch a story on a computer watch a freaking movie and i mean that's not to discount all of the amazing work that has been done for streaming theater especially in this going on 15 month shutdown of broadway but that isn't theater in the same way that's theater is live that is what makes it what it is. And that give and take of the audience and the way that energy is carried and moved within that space is what makes theater what it is. So I think that for the theater productions, that is really the only way to understand them. And that is really the only way to experience them. And those are also not the only ways to experience Averno. Like I think that you could read the webcomic and the novels and do nothing else. And you would still have an excellent understanding of Averno. And I think that you could just listen to the podcasts and still have an excellent understanding of Averno. They're just another means of experiencing it. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic in a sense forced you guys to adopt some modes of working that traditional companies, theater companies, media companies, storytelling companies had to try to find a way to improvise into. What long-term advantages, if any, do you think that gives you? Big lessons it taught you or or just the skill of working in that fully digital way to to produce and to create? I mean, I think the fact that we were so quick to do it is kind of the biggest thing that we got out of it because Broadway was such a mess when it shut down. There was, at first people were like, it's only going to be down three weeks. And then they were like, it's only going to be down a month. And then they were like, it's eh, two months. And then it'll be back by summer. And then no, the fall, for sure it'll be back. And then no, January. And then now they're like the September 2022 or 2021. So like everybody was kind of banking on this date that was never going to come and then eventually started trying to pivot towards doing digital content release, but trying to do it with absolutely no understanding of it. And like often creating stuff that was of a lower caliber than YouTubers were creating a decade ago. And just because people were very sort of slow to pick it up and very hesitant to do it. Whereas like sort of off the bat in... April, I was like, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is what we're pivoting to. And the other interesting thing is that 
there was actually no pivot for our team. Our team has never existed in person. I've never worked in an office building with the Averno employees or anything like that. We only know online workflow and we only know sort of trying to schedule meetings in between six different time zones and using online project management systems and stuff like that. That's how we've always worked. And it's honestly a way that people are very used to working with on our team because the average age is probably 18. We have as low as 13 year olds on our team. Wow. And up to 25. What is the 13-year-old skill? They're an artist, an absolute brilliant artist. Fabulous. How did you find your 13-year-old artist? How did you find any of these people? Most of them just applied. We put out calls on social media every couple of months for applications to join the teams. And I read through the applications and they don't ask about age on there. They just ask you to provide a portfolio and a description of the software that you're comfortable with and your experience working on a team. And then I said yes to this artist. And at our first meeting, she was like, oh yeah, I'm 13. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> Now you just said when the pandemic hit, you said right away, right? Okay, we're pivoting to this. How were you thinking of Averno before the pandemic hit? What was it going to be before that happened? I mean, I think it was mostly sort of the same in the vision of having lots of different stories, lots of different mediums, et cetera. I was definitely thinking about going for a more traditional theater development route. So I was thinking, you know, write some scripts, find some composers, get some stuff, and then apply for theater festivals and apply for the development programs and stuff like that. But then they all disappeared. So I was like, okay, we're just going to release it online. Got it. See what happens. But I mean, I think that honestly, the pandemic was really good for Averno because it meant that everybody was looking online exclusively for their content and had time to devote to that. So that was really good. But in terms of like the actual sort of way that we were doing it, it was always kind of going to be online because pretty much all of the mediums that I'm writing in require you to be older and have more money to put out content. And they're all very slow and they're all lots of waiting back and forth for six months of emails. And I'm like, you know what? I can create a great story on my own for under a hundred dollars, including production costs and put it out on the internet and hundreds of thousands of people are going to see it. And I don't need to wait a year for your email back. <laughs> yes. The brashness and impatience of youth. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> The first production you did that really got traction, gained an audience was Oceanborn, right? Is that, tell us the story of, of Oceanborn as well. Where did that idea come from and how did it end up online? How did it end up off Broadway? Yeah, so I was reading an anthropological magazine one day and I read an article about how basically people had assumed for a very long time that Viking warriors were all men because most of the skeletons were buried with a lot of weaponry and sort of hordes of wealth and stuff like that that are traditionally associated with famous male warriors. But it turns out that they were just women. Nobody had bothered to like check the pelvises and stuff. So I heard that and I was like, that needs to be a story. And at that point I had written two novels, I believe. And I was like, this, I mean, it could be a novel, but I kind of wanted it to be something a little bit more alive and immediate. And at the time, my best friend was a songwriter and we were both very into musicals. And I was like, hey, I know my way around words and you know your way around music. I think it seems like we got two halves of a team here. Sounds like it. And so we got together. I got us a massive cardboard box of books for Christmas of just sort of intro to musical theater, musical theater structure, stuff like that. There are only like three books on writing musical theater. So I got all three of them, some of which are massively outdated. One of them still said that the way that you send your demos to theaters to try to get them to pick up your show is via cassette tape. Um <laughs> And I was like, I don't even know how you would put something on a cassette tape. 
So yeah, I got us all of the books that I could on sort of the, the history of Vikings and the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, which is where it was set. We separated for a bit because I had to go visit my family and we read a bunch of books and then we got back together and we wrote the first draft of the show in 10 days. Whoa. Banged it out. How does your creative process work on something like that? Once you did some of the research, do you reach a point where you can sort of see the, the arc and shape of the story and then you just have to sort of spill it out of your brain onto a page or onto a screen? Yeah. I outlined that story and came up with those characters and stuff in a car ride back and forth to Maine. And while I was up in Maine, I was reading these books about sort of the history of it. And I was like, okay, so in a musical, you usually want to have two main characters and they need to bump up against each other. And usually it's a man and a woman and they fall in love. But I didn't want to do that (laughs) because that's a little bit, it's been done at this point. (laughs) A few Um, times. And a few times. And so I was like, okay, so what would be the most unlikely pairing to bump up against each other and I figured the the daughter of a great Viking warrior and the daughter of the chief of one of these little fishing villages and they bump up against each other when the Vikings come and raid their village and slaughter everybody including the girl's father that's an unlikely duo and that's going to be an automatic pairing that creates a lot of tension and has a lot of back and forth and a lot of just sort of failure to understand each other and honestly once I had those characters it just kind of fell into place in terms of the outline like I wrote that entire outline in one car ride just because it's kind of so clear like you have these opposite characters you have a bunch of deaths they end up getting thrown together on this island and then they have to come to an understanding they have to teach each other something they have to have an exchange of skills they need to reach a new point together and then they need to be ripped apart because we don't love happy endings (laughs) but ripped (laughs) apart in a way that is bittersweet and shows the audience that we've all learned something from each other and that the people that we meet and the lessons we learn or the, the friends we make along the way is the real lesson of life so that that all just kind of like flew out wow and then we went and wrote it so you have some of the writing there you've got the script there yes I do I'd love to hear a little bit of it yeah so this is like the first first opening monologue or part of it it's a very long monologue I'm not going to read the whole thing the end of the world was long ago but it begins again when men of dust pick up their swords and make foes of their friends the seas turn red when blood is shed and dust chokes out the dawn and the weary cycle never ends till all are dead and gone Whoa. It goes on for like another two pages, but we're not going to go that far. (laughs) All right. Yeah, that's probably a good place to stop. But you can hear what you were saying before about the mythical dimension, that the resonance and the gravity of the words really do come through. Yeah. I like the heightening of that aspect. And I think that it really isn't necessarily always changing the context. Obviously, that is sort of a very mythological context. It is a hundred or a thousand years ago, and it's not something that most of us are going to be able to call to immediate memory. But I think that the real sense of mythological storytelling is to place the struggles of one character into the context of like the entire world. And suddenly it's not just, you know, a man trying to get home from war and it takes him a gajillion years. It's the fact that none of us can ever truly return from traumatic events that change us. And, you know, obviously that's the odyssey. But I think that stories can have very dramatic context to them. But when you place the struggles of one character into the greater context of the history and struggle and journey of humanity, then you can kind of take anything up to a mythological level. So you write it in 10 days, and then what becomes of Oceanborn? Then we split up and went back to school. We were both, that was my freshman year of college. So I went back up to Bryn Mawr 
and did some edits and stuff like that. And I ended up pitching it. I can't remember exactly. I think we started the Instagram account for it in like April or so. Once we started having some like demos and stuff like that to share, because I mean, at that point I was kind of like, okay, the theater world is like impossible to get into. There's kind of a group of like 15 people who get their stuff produced. And if you are not rich or the child of a rich person or the child of a producer, usually your stuff isn't going to get produced until you have to sort of slam your head against a wall again and again and again, and then write something that's usually just try having to like profit off of like your identity so that people are like, oh, look, we can stage a blankety blank show. And then that makes us look good. And that's kind of the way in. So unless you're doing that, it's really hard to get your stuff staged, damn near impossible. So then I was like, okay, I'm 19 and I have a few pennies to my name, but not many. So I'm probably not going to get this produced anytime soon. So time to start sort of chronicling the process online, especially because at that point there were not other teenagers writing musicals. I mean, there maybe were, but they weren't talking about it or putting it anywhere. So it felt pretty alone. So started putting that stuff online and really it started picking up and gaining like a following and a community very quickly. And I reached out to 54 Below, which is one of the sort of more well-known venues in New York, particularly for like musical theater concerts and stuff like that. And I sort of told them what we were up to. And I asked if we could perform a concert of it. And they said, yes, which was huge. So then I went back from college and I told Mari and Hannah, who was Mari's sister, who also performed in the concert with us, that we had that opportunity. And we ended up spending that entire summer really like prepping for it, rehearsing, workshopping the music and editing stuff. And we really, we documented the entire period of time and we put it all online and we did live streams and we hung out with people. And it formed this like brilliant, lovely community of young people who were interested in seeing other young people creating work and putting it out there. Wow. So how'd it go at 54? Do you suffer stage fright? I mean, it's one thing to be producing content and posting it on the internet, but you get up on stage in front of a live audience. I've been performing on stage in front of a live audience since I was very young. So I don't get, I don't get much stage fright. All right. I was a little bit, I wasn't, I, I wasn't as nervous to perform as much as I was just nervous because I wanted it to go well. You know, we'd been working up to it for so long at that point that I really, I wanted people to like it and I wanted it to go well, but I'm not, I'm not nervous on a stage. I, I love, especially speaking in front of people. I love talking in front of people. But the, so that anxiety was about the reception and the audience reaction. Yeah. And, and mostly just about wanting the entire thing to sort of go off without a hitch. Like even if like later on, I was really nervous on the opening night of Oceanborn off Broadway and I wasn't even in it. I just wanted it to go well. Yeah. How do you respond to fear? I mean, you've done some amazing things already and just, I mean, the emotional threshold of cold calls to get stuff produced is something I, I know I could never manage. I'm so not cut out for your world. But how do you process and get through those moments of anxiety or worry? I honestly don't get scared, really. I have a lot of confidence in myself and the work that I do and my ability to sort of comport myself while speaking to people and convey what I'm hoping to convey. I think also sort of the background in gymnastics and vaulting and being thrown around on top of a moving horse. Like once you've done that, cold calling somebody is not very scary. <laughs> I feared for life and limb before. I've been dropped off of a moving horse. Like phone calls don't scare me. <laughs> Yeah, that is a fascinating part of your backstory, your equestrian vaulting, which which even had a lineage in your family, if I understand. 
Yes. My aunt, who is like 16 years older than me, did it. And my grandmother, her mother was a lunger, which is somebody who sort of handles the horse and stuff like that. And they were very involved in it. And I ended up vaulting on her same team decades later, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that's very... What sort of moves do you do on the horse? Is the horse being led around a ring or are you also controlling the horse while you're controlling your body and... No. So the lunger stands in the center of the circle and they have the horse on what's called the lunge line. It's kind of like a very, very long leash that connects to their bridle. And then they have a whip. Well, I mean, it's it's like a whip, but it isn't a whip. It's like this sort of long pole with a little bit of rope at the end. And they, they sort of whip it a little bit to get the horse going, but they don't actually touch the horse. And they keep the horse running in a circle and the vaulter does not. If everything is going well, the vaulter shouldn't have to worry about the horse at all, or at least like moving the horse. The horse is kind of doing its own thing. And you're working with the horse to do your gymnastics on the back of it, but you are definitely not guiding it at all. I took horseback riding lessons as a very young girl. And our minor approach to vaulting was the usual kind of exercise of turning around sideways on the saddle or while the, hor yep. while the horse is moving at a very slow gait, just to let you know that you were not actually going to fall off if you moved a toe or a big finger. But that's as far as I was ever going to get towards something like gymnastics on a horse, that's for sure. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the world going forward. I mean, the pandemic pandemic will end. Mm -hmm. you, you love writing most of all. Do you five years from now hope that you're a published writer? Hope you're still doing the multimedia? I think definitely published writer is one of the biggest ones. That is just, it's been one of my big goals since I was a teenager. The first thing I wrote was a novel and I've always wanted to get a novel published and the novel that I'm working on right now feels like the one, you know, knock wood, not to jinx it, but it is definitely the piece of writing that I have been the most proud of and that feels the most complete and ready to meet the world. I think very few writers actually end up publishing their first work. I think that it takes everybody a couple of bad books to start becoming a good writer. This is my, like, can't even remember at this point, like maybe seventh or something like that. I don't know. I've written a good number of books, some of which I literally wrote the first draft and I said, that was a great learning experience. And then I put it away never to touch it again, because you don't need to do something with everything that you do. Sometimes it just exists to have been an experience you've had and to be a story that you tell. But this is the first one where I felt confident in a real sense and not just in sort of an optimistic, hopeful sense that it is something that I could see on shelves one day. What can you tell us about it? You said it's almost ready to meet the real world, but... Yes, it is still in edits right now because I'm trying to kind of make it fall a little bit better. But it is the first in a four book series in Averno. And there's, there's kind of a main cast of characters that repeats across the stories. There isn't like a single group of people who are in all of it, but there's kind of like 40 sort of usual suspects who end up being in the things in one way or another in different combinations and permutations thereof. How do you keep 40 people alive in your head? That's amazing. Oh, it's a lot more than 40 that I keep alive in there. It's just 40 that I have like fleshed out and I've written for oh, like my pieces goodness. about. <laughs> I think that they just won't shut up. That's, that's how I keep them alive. <laughs> But the novel is this sort of combination of some of the biggest like main characters in the stories. It is a group of seven people, each one each from the seven departments who find their way 
together and they end up becoming kind of a friend group by the end of the book. And then the next three years is them at school, sort of sometimes just being young adults growing up and figuring out what that means. Other times being kind of having to deal with the unraveling of Averno and the magical systems that have been created. And each of the seven main characters is almost all of them are characters that have other stories. No, no, no. It is all of them. It's Quinn and Will from Live from Averno and Quinn from Bitter Summer. Soren, who's from Built for This Time, a rock musical. Nova, who's from Over and Out. And Jolene and Annabelle, who are from Starcursed, which is not anywhere yet. That's a secret project. But all the other ones are works you've already produced and that are online, right? Yes, except Built for This Time is not out yet. Okay. That one's being worked on right now. We've talked about it publicly. And then the last one is Calliope, who is in a secret project that I can't talk about but all of the main characters have a full-length piece that is about just them or about sort of duos and subgroups from that group and then in the novel they all get to get thrown together into one friend group to try to function and operate which is very fun so you've got legal systems and backstories and character profiles and a magical system And you've conceived of and invented all of those. How does that work then with all the collaborators and the the fandom world as people offer their contributions to something like Averno? What's what's your balance point of maintaining control is not quite the word I'm looking for, but it's integrity of Averno, the place, the concept, the magic system. How do you make that work? Yeah. So, I mean, for fan contributions, it's that literally people can do whatever they want, but it stays in the the fanon, the fan canon. And it's never going to be like canon. And that, that gives people the freedom to do whatever they want. We don't have like humanoid monsters, for instance, in Averno. There are not vampires or werewolves or zombies or anything like that. But there are plenty of fans who create vampire original characters and write fan fictions about it. Like, I don't need to compromise the integrity of my magical systems to incorporate vampires and werewolves and zombies and, you know, whatever the heck else people make. But I also want to give everybody that freedom because, like, who am I to tell you you can't have a vampire? Like, if you want a vampire, you can go do it. I'm just not going to do it because that's not my jam. And we just we just don't have them in my country. <laughs> exactly. And then in terms of collaborators, the vast majority I work with musicians and artists. I like I do the script writing, I do the novel writing and stuff like that. And that's not necessarily because I don't trust other people to do it. It's more of a nobody knows Averno the way that I do. There are lots of people who are brilliant and wonderful and lovely and have written music or something for a musical or even like two musicals, but they know probably 5% of what exists. They haven't necessarily listened to the podcast or read the web comics and stuff like that. And that's just the stuff that's out, like of the stuff that sits on my computer that nobody has touched, nobody has seen, like they definitely don't know about that stuff. And so like, they shouldn't be expected to know all of that. But I also can't necessarily have them come up with a character who's like, you know, they showed up in 1974 and blah, 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 because I might have a character that conflicts with that. Or like, I might have a random thing somewhere that conflicts with that. And like, there's no feasible way I could expect people to stay caught up with that quantity of lore. But I also don't want to have an issue where it starts contradicting itself because that is the kind of stuff that fans clutch onto. 
fans love to see sort of the puzzle box of the world. And if it loses internal consistency in the sort of physics and mechanisms and structures that exist, then they will pick up on that immediately. And they will lose their trust for the world because the way that they see it right now is sort of me showing them around this world, but that world maintains its own reality. That world, even though you may not understand the rules that govern it, you trust that there are rules that govern it and that there is a way that it works. And if you are just to hang on long enough and read enough and understand enough, then you will understand it as well. And then as soon as you break that, as soon as you start having people flying when they couldn't yesterday, then you don't trust that things are going to sort of follow any structure that you can understand. And it becomes way less satisfying. Interesting. Having never been in a fan mode of that sort, it's still a little hard for me to grasp that, but I think I get what you're what you're getting at. It has to be something about feeling. Could this be part of the reason that it has such an appeal to young people, that sense of I do understand some world and I do have some trust in it? Because the real outside world can be so much messier and and often much more disappointing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely part of it. And that's part of why people like fantasy in general is that it is a system and a consistent system in which you understand how things work. But I mean, it's not even always just fantasy worlds. There is a paradigm of reality that's created with any story that's being told. And like you need there and that is sort of a paradigm that's created by like the emotional truths of what's being told and the sort of mood that it's being told in and all of that. And you're just not going to believe it if there's something that's clearly not in line with the rest of that. And I mean, that can come down to like, even I'm trying to think of movies. I don't watch movies very much. So I'm trying to think of like popular movies of the last little while. I'm right there with you on that. So don't, don't be looking to me to have a title for you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if there's like a movie that is a sort of upbeat office comedy, or something like that. And then somebody gets shot outside the office and it's a horrible tragedy and they leave behind children and it's massively sad. And you deal with that for a few scenes and then you just move on and you go back to the upbeat office comedy. Then your audience is going to be really thrown because like, sure, it can be an office building in Hagerstown, Maryland that follows all of our rules of physics. There's no fantasy involved whatsoever. But if you've been making jokes about office supplies and about, you know, the gross dude in the office who hits on everybody or whatever, and then somebody gets gunned down in front of the building, then like, it's just not, it doesn't feel tangibly part of the world that you've been creating, even if it follows like the physics that you've made thus far. And that's kind of a trust that the audience puts into the storyteller to give them the vocabulary that they're thinking about the story with and to keep that vocabulary consistent. And obviously with Averno, it's kind of heightened because there are magical elements to it. And I've set up the specific ways in which the magic functions and it is not broomstick magic or wand waving magic or you know, shooting lightning bolts out of your fingertip magic and stuff like that. And so if I introduced any of those, then it would be strange to have it functioning in that way. But it's also just that I've introduced sort of an emotional vocabulary and a type of story that I am telling. And if I kind of made an about face on the things that I cared about or the the things that are being told, then people would read it as insincere. Yeah, that head snap, I think we've all seen in a novel or book somewhere or on the screen. So what is the magic of Averno like? What is it about for those of us that think of lightning bolts and broomsticks (laughs) and wands? It is a much sort of stranger and more 
old fashioned kind of magic. I think the sort of mid 20th century ways of thinking about magic created a lot more like systems and structures about like magic is a specific form of power. And in a capitalist society, or even just a society that's hinged upon groups of people having more power than others, there is a hierarchy of who is able to access that magic. And it's often by either birthright or society class or by the amount of money that you have, or it's sort of like not ethnicity necessarily, but like in Harry Potter, it's passed on by blood. It is like a, it's a physical trait, but you know, sort of genotypic somehow. And that whole sort of structure is in some ways really satisfying to read because there is a really clear way where, you know, like in Harry Potter, usually you have, you have two pure blood parents, then the, the kid will always be magic unless they're a squib. And if you have one magical parent and one non-magical parent, then sometimes you end up with a magical kid. Sometimes you don't, and they're called half-bloods. And if you sometimes you can get a random magical person out of nowhere who has two non-magical persons and they just like spontaneously appear and you know they're sort of called muggleborns or derogatorily called mudbloods and you can understand all of that and it's very clear delineated rules and stuff like that and I just wasn't interested in that um I'm not about it I love reading it I think it's fun but I wanted a magic that felt more ambient and less understandable there is no rules as to who could technically access it. Everybody accesses it in different ways. For instance, the main character, Quinn, he is touched by the magic of Averno from all the way across the United States. He grows up in Washington and he has these strange dreams his entire childhood of this forest and these women in the woods and stuff like that. And so he's clearly like dreaming about Averno from the time that he is a child. There is no reason why he necessarily does this. And there's no reason that's necessarily why it's him. There's children who are sort of saved and brought into the forest. And most of them by proximity to the forest end up developing some form of magical ability or perhaps just atypical means of viewing the world. One of them can hear the dead. One of them can sort of walk in dreams, stuff like that. But there is definitely no physical manipulation of the world around you. There's nobody who can wave their arm and like make a tree fall over or make like a thunderstorm appear or something like that. It's all mainly sort of altered states of consciousness and altered states of understanding the world, which is I think part of what makes it so compelling is this theoretical sort of, we all have access to it. You know, Quinn was experiencing the magic of Averno all the way from Washington. And a sort of strange and also interesting thing that happens in the fandom is that often as soon as people join the Averno fandom, they start having very vivid dreams about Averno. And of course, that's partially just, you know, subconscious suggestibility and stuff like that. But it sort of is a noticeable splash. There's a whole channel in the Discord dedicated to people talking about the dreams they have in Averno. And it definitely sort of contributes to the feeling of it being a little otherworldly. Very cool. You do something very interesting when you have these Averno gatherings, I understand, even though they're all virtual, that you guys hug. Yes. Tell, tell me about how did that come about? Was that a pandemic effect? Yeah. I mean, I started doing that in the li live streams about six months ago, probably. And I honestly can't remember what prompted me to do it the first time. I think it was just an idea that popped into my head. But I, I do these live streams every once in a while, usually every week or every other week, sometimes, sometimes more often than that. Sometimes I'll do it every night for a week. And they're primarily just sort of spaces for us to hang out, answer questions, be sort of together virtually. And one of the big focuses of Averno is that it is a community and that it is really about the people. And I wanted to kind of remind everybody of that and remind everybody that this is not just some 
franchise owned by a corporation or something like this is people. And that's what makes Averno Averno. And so I looked at the counter of how many people there were. It was like, you know, 150 or whatever. And I said, everybody, I want you to reach out your hands. And then I want to take, have you take them and hug yourself, like wrap yourself up in a big hug. And for this minute, you know, there's 150 of us all over the world in different time zones, in different countries, all over the United States, all over the whole world. And we're all in this moment together. And we're all sitting in you know, our bedrooms and in school and stuff like that, sort of surreptitiously hugging ourselves. And we are all real people. Like we're all really a community that's actually here together. And I do it at the end of all my live streams now, because I think that it's a really precious reminder that this is not fake. So many people think about sort of fandom communities as this like escapism and online friends as like they're not real friends and stuff like that. But the way I've seen these kids care for each other in this past year and the sort of Averno fans really reaching out to each other and, you know, they wish each other happy birthday and they ask each other how their tests have gone. And there's, you know, a bunch of them that log on every single night to the Discord and, you know, talk until bed. And I think that that's really beautiful. And they're caring for each other in a way that, often I think people feel very uncared for in middle school and high school. I just like to think of it as like a tangible reminder that all of these people are real. They're not just names on a screen. They aren't just like profile pictures. They're real people. And you're all doing this together and you're all caring for each other. And that's really beautiful. That is absolutely lovely. And I have to imagine middle school on top of a pandemic, those are two things made everybody feel that way a lot during this past year. Yeah. So since our first attempt at this interview, I've adopted another practice that I think it won't be a hug, but I think it's going to be a bit of a signature feature for this podcast, which is a couple of lightning round kind of questions, quick blurb questions. So here's the ones I came up with for you. Would you rather sing or dance? Mm, Dance. What genre? Anything that gets me to move my body in a way that makes me happy. I just like bouncing. (laughs) that's how my father used to dance that was about as good as he could do (laughs) what's the top item on your post-pandemic freedom list oh I think concerts I really miss live music I think that I mean obviously live theater but concerts especially a place you want to visit that you haven't been yet Ooh, ooh, oh so many New Zealand all right go see where the hobbit holes movie sets yes exactly And what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Oh, goodness. Probably moving to New York. I mean, especially because I I transferred schools after my sophomore year and I moved to New York with my partner, who is still my partner. But we had only been together for nine months at that point. So leaving my school and moving to a city on my own with my partner into an actual apartment, not into school housing, when I was 19 was a pretty ballsy move. And also, I think one of the best decisions I've ever made. Well done. And the last one is... What person would you, living or dead, would you most like to have dinner with? Oh, oh, there's so many. Okay, two dinners. Okay, okay, this is kind of a, this is a cheat. I'm going to combine the two dinners into one. I want to have dinner with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis because the two of them and their friendship and their back and forth and their discussions, so funny, so hilarious. I've read so many of their letters and I would just love to see them go at it in real life. Table for three coming up. (laughs) (laughs) what have I not asked you about you won't tell me about your secret project so I won't I won't try that I know you're too good at keeping secrets (laughs) 
I am very experienced at keeping secrets at this point. I think the biggest thing is the next thing that's happening for Averno. And this actually might already be out by the time this podcast comes out, but on June 4th, Bitter Summer, which is the next musical in the series of musicals we're releasing with Broadway Records, is going to be coming out. And it is a lovely, soft, folksy summer album that I really think is going to sort of make a splash because it's just so genuine and lovely. It's kind of the happiest and also saddest of the stories that we've told so far. And it was the first musical for Averno. And so it really sort of has a special place in my heart. June 4th, Bitter Summer. And that will be released... On all platforms. Anywhere that you listen to music, if you search Bitter Summer, then you'll be able to find it. Congratulations on that. That's a a wonderful milestone to have coming up. And that will have, that should have happened before this goes live because we're going to go live on June 10th. Oh, exciting. Well, so then yes, by the time this comes out, you'll be able to go listen to Bitter Summer. Wonderful. I'll look forward to that. Well, I thank you again so much for being with us today and uh, taking our listeners on a creative journey, a very distinctively unique creative journey. And maybe we've gotten you some more citizens for Averno. Who knows? (laughs) I love that. All right. Great talking to you, Morgan. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.